This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 8th of March 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm really good. Hey, and you are good too? Yes, I'm excellent. We're doing a podcast. It's always fun, isn't it? What have you been up to for the last couple of weeks? Uh, well, been busy. I've talked before already in earlier episodes about the Spark masterclasses we were doing. So this week, uh, the first two have actually happened. Uh, first one on Monday and last one uh, Thursday. And uh, well, it's always in the first time you do one of those classes. There's a lot of uh, trial and error, seeing what works, what doesn't work. But we did pretty well, I think. We had a full day. People were very uh, seriously working on the stuff you were presenting, so that was mm-hmm. good. We had some good feedback as well, so uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Still have a couple more to do, and uh, we'll see in the end how it uh, evolves, I guess. Uh, what else? Uh, I've also been talking earlier about the railways. So we're going to install NIFI on all the trains, so that's still uh, in the works as well. That's uh, heading towards something actual, actually installed, so that's getting interesting. Nice. And the last thing I want to mention here is there's actually a new use case I encountered, well, me for, new for me, in the finance world, where there's a kind of EU directive called MIFID, MIFID 2 it's actually now. And that actually means that financial institutions need to be able to answer any kind of questions from uh, governance instances on any kind of data, documentation, emails, chats, uh, any contact with the customers really everything needs to be documented and on request be made available and it's turning out to be a great uh, Hadoop use case because <laughs> they used to put all this stuff on tape and yeah. getting it from the tape took two weeks which was a problem and doing it in Hadoop uh, is how they're now trying to just be able to meet the requirements of this uh, directive so uh, we're looking at uh, ingesting a couple of petabytes of email at the moment and uh, that would be that should be good. I hope to talk about about this uh, in future because uh, it's new for me. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting use case as well. There, I mean, it's it's a sort of development of the active archive sort of side of things where people are, uh, are going from you know some of their tape based storage mechanisms that they used to have for data that they were required to keep for you know legal reasons in one one way, shape, or form, and it's just it's not not able to keep up with the. The rate that they're adding new data and also the retrieval times uh, are coming you know the demands from regulations are sort of increasing in terms of the shrinking those retrieval times so that's uh, i think that was that was actually british airways that was their first uh, project that they talked about at the uh, the last european hadoop summit was actually something very very similar okay yeah it's the retrieval that's the new part of it storing it's been done forever but being a, using it to have fast retrieval to have an active archive as you say it was new for me anyway, so I'm having fun with it. Nice, nice. And the the, the Spark Masterclass, what's, uh, you said that sort of overall feedback's been pretty good. Have, have there been bits that people have enjoyed, you know, uh, specifically over some of the other content? Well, the generic feedback was that uh, they were happy that we touched on a, a lot of small things. We didn't go mm-hmm. deep in anything at any real deep level because you have a very, very public, of course. You have no idea if you have data scientists or operations people in there, so we had to cover it all. And actually appreciate the fact that the, everything had this little moment in the in the sun there. And through the day, so people kind of fade out when it wasn't their kind of thing. When we talked about the machine learning algorithms, some people were like, okay, I'm happy that I know this exists and I'm happy that I now understand how people work with this and how you can 
talk with those people, having the same yeah. lingo a bit. But it's not something I'm ever going to do. So, yeah, it's fun. So the feedback was generally, it wasn't all 100% useful for me in my everyday work. But everything I'm going to see here, I will be using just in communicating with the rest of the team. Because as we talked before, a Hadoop team is always very heterogeneous. We have all kinds of people in there from security, operations, scientists, database administrators. Everybody's doing their thing in that ecosystem. And just having on this Spark, memory analytics, machine learning um, area, having the same lingo. If somebody talks about an RDD or a distributed data set, they have to know what that is. If somebody talks about regression or forests or whatever. Just having that awareness of the whole uh, thing, thats uh, that was the biggest feedback, really. Yeah, that's really nice. I think that the thing that people don't uh, don't always realize when they're doing public sessions like this is you will get, uh, you know, reg- almost regardless of what you set in terms of prerequisites for these things, you will always get a, a really wide range of, of people turning up. So it's definitely important to make sure that, uh, you know, you can, um, you can cater for that. So, yeah, that sounds like you've... Uh, done pretty well there yeah we've gone through everything from uh, just introduction to the technique machine learning a bit of streaming as well so that was good anyway enough about me what have you been doing ah so my section's been going to be way quicker um meetings lots of meetings um a lot of on-site meetings uh a lot of webexes as well uh yeah just a range of meetings uh, and also actually some some follow up it's probably worth um worth spending a little bit of time on what i've been following up on i guess um the last podcast you will have heard that i was at mobile world congress uh mwc in barcelona and that was i have to say that was excellent it was really really good it was a great event um and if you're if you're in sort of the telco world or if you're focused on telcos at all it's one of those events that you you, you know you really need to be at in some way shape or form um so i mean i met more uh you know cxos so cto cios um heads of big data you know globally for various different telcos worldwide um during the sort of the, the three days of the event um than i did probably during the previous you know three months or so so it was it was great to like connect with a whole bunch of people um also connecting with um and hearing about what organizations are doing outside my my normal remit so there are you know several of the uh canadian uh carriers were there and uh, so talking about them with uh, some of their plans for the future and what they're looking to do so really really interesting and of course uh, you get back from these these kind of events and you're sort of energized and tired at the same time um, and then obviously you've got all the all the follow-up to do next but uh, that's so yeah that's that's been my last two weeks as lots and lots of follow-up still a bit more to do but uh, yeah really really interesting um, event really great event so that always uh, uh, energizes me to do more and dive into some interesting stuff yeah so I guess I have to thank you for having a relatively calm week because all my telco customers were out of town <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah they were all uh, and uh, for anyone that hasn't been to uh to barcelona during mobile world congress um let's just say that the event just it really does take over the city the traffic becomes horrendous uh, you end up getting up uh, or you know, leaving two hours before you need to be anywhere to, to do anything and yeah it's a crazy time but it was it was it was well worth it yeah excellent 
All right, so that's the end of our uh, our little intro piece. Um, come back after the break for our main topic today, which is uh, SQL on Hadoop. Some of the different options, some of our views, some of the views from the uh, uh, the different providers themselves. So stay tuned for that. And welcome back to the main uh, part of this podcast. As they've uh, mentioned before, this time we're going to talk about SQL on Hadoop. The main uh, idea for this episode is to just do a generic overview of all available uh, options out there. And when I say all, most of them, because uh, it's open source, so things pop up every day. Uh, but there's a couple of them that are more prevalent than others, so I hope we have a good overview here. We're not going to go into any depth on e- either of them in how you actually use them or install them because, first of all, I'm not that big an expert on uh, SQL to begin with. But we should be able to just give you an idea of what's out there and what the differences are when you should look at one and not the other and things like that. But in the end, of course, it's all about choice and we just want to give you the information so you can make a good choice. Now, we did some uh, ordering in the list of applications, and first we're going to look at all the real Apache projects. Since Hadoop is an Apache project, the SQL solutions that are in Apache as well usually have a tighter connection to the ecosystem, so we're going to go through those first. And the first of all SQLs you have to talk about in any Hadoop environment is, of course, Apache Hive. Apache Hive's been there since the beginning, basically. Uh, at the original Hadoop 1.0, you had Yarn, uh, didn't even have Yarn, you had MapReduce, you had HCFS, and that was about it. SQL quickly became uh, something that everybody wanted, because most of the people working with Hadoop at that time were database administrators who really talked SQL. And very quickly, Apache Hive came in to fill that void to give people a SQL front-end to all their data in their HFS file systems. So to say that Hive is the granddaddy of all SQL and Hadoop is not wrong. And if you look at their website, the thing they actually say is, and I quote, it facilitates querying and managing large data sets residing in distributed storage. And that pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that's probably important to mention here when we're talking about SQL is it's very much, it's it's the common entrance for a lot of organizations into their their Hadoop environment. So, you know, SQL has been around since I think 1974. Uh, Wikipedia tells me, um, and uh, obviously, while Hadoop hasn't been around for that long, um, SQL is just one of those standards that that is prevalent in almost every single organization. So, having a, a SQL interface in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, to your environment is going to be almost certainly critically important. Um, in terms of Hive specifically. As as you said, Jon, I mean it's it's the it's the default, it's the gold standard, if you like, uh, for SQL. In many cases, it's what a lot of people start with, and obviously we're going to uncover um, some other options. Um, one of the nice things about Hive is is it generally tends to scale um, incredibly well. So whether you're looking at uh, you know multi petabyte uh, data sets that you want to be able to query. Or you're looking at uh, you know more moderate sizes, or even going down to to smaller sizes. Um, you know, Hive tends to be fairly resilient, fairly reliable across all of those uh, different options. Um, 
some of the concerns that people have about it is uh, is that maybe it's not as quick as some of the um, some of the solutions we'll be talking about a bit later. Um, but I think you know, the community's been doing a lot of work to try and improve that. Um, you know, you've seen traditionally the the Stinger initiative that was spearheaded by Horton Works maybe but overall driven by the community with many different organizations contributing to um, making um, Hive significantly faster and then you know if you take a look now to see what they're doing then we're sort of right in the uh, right in the midst of the next scale of that initiative which is the stinger.next initiative which is again you know tradi- uh, increasing the speed of, of Hive and also increasing you know, SQL compliance and that side of things. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely one of the the key platforms. Yeah, and also with uh, the Stinger initiative, you had uh, the file format, the ORC file format that came in that allows you to yeah. do a lot of optimization uh, on top of Hive. Because never forget that Hive out of the box might not be optimized. And there's a lot of gain to get be gotten just by having vectorization and stuff like that enabled. And uh, I'm not sure actually if this was part of the Stinger or not, but the uh, dropping of MapReduce in favor of the TAS-directed uh, graphs, that was also a uh, Stinger, right? Yeah, that's right. That also gave you the speed increase there. And as you said, they're still working on it to make it faster. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Hive, I know there's some asset support in there now, and I actually don't know if any of the other things we're going to talk about have asset support. So if you have some input there, that would be greatly appreciated. What I do know about the asset support in Hive is it does come with a few caveats. For example, any table that has asset support, you better not change the, state, the table structure anymore because an alter table typically will void any data. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a few... Uh, a few things that you need to dig in if you're going to use that asset support. I mean, it's all it's all reasonably well documented, um, but it's definitely a case of making sure that you're exactly clear on some of those uh, restrictions. Yeah, so maybe to summarize, Hive, good for big data, might not be the fastest one out of the gate. Tune it to make it better. Asset compliance is reasonable, and SQL syntax support also reasonable. Yeah, and I think that the final thing that I would add is it, reliability it is very, very good. Um, you know, there's a, a number of different, uh, you, you always see various different benchmarking things rolling out or various different uh, um, comparison um, things rolling out. And we'll talk a bit more about benchmarks and comparisons a bit later. But the, the important thing that always comes up when people talk about Hive is, you know, yes, it may take a little bit longer to run on some uh, some particular data sets and some queries. Uh, but generally speaking, it always completes. You always get your answer. Some of the solutions we'll be talking about later, you know, either blow up or just don't respond. Um, and, you know, that's that, that, that should be a consideration when you're choosing a, a SQL engine. Yeah, definitely, because obviously a lot of people will start developing on smaller machines and their eventual production machine, and having something working brilliantly on your develop system, and you move it to production and it just falls over, that is not what you want. So yeah, yeah. definitely a good point. Yep. Okay, so the, the next one that we're going to talk about, so we're going from the, the granddaddy to the, uh, the, the young new hotness, uh, which is, of course, Apache uh, Spark SQL. Um, so from their own uh, from their own website, uh, they they call Spark SQL Spark's module for working with structured data. Um, so yeah, not quite as on point perhaps as uh, as Hive's description, but we'll get into that. Um, 
you know, really this is a SQL API onto the existing Spark RDDs. And if you're not familiar with Spark RDDs, then go ahead and check out our previous uh, intro podcast on Spark. Um, but it's, it's uh, connecting to those through the data frame abstraction. And uh, it also allows access to the Hive Metastore for uh, context material as well. Now, it's Spark, so it's in memory, so it's obviously going to be uh, nice and quick. Um, you need to make sure that all of your data can preferably fit in memory. As, uh, there, are, there are options to spill to disk, but you know, again, we talked about those in, in our previous Spark podcast as well. You really want to make sure that all the data you're querying fits into the available memory across the cluster. Um, but in doing that, you'll get you know really nice response to what about you, Jan? Anything to add on that? Uh, well, the one thing I would like to add is that uh, if you're working with that Hive context, a lot of people assume that you're actually using Hive Server 2 behind the scenes, and that's really not the case. As far as I know, the Spark will not be using the Hive Server 2 optimizer or executor thing, because that would just be stupid. Uh, the idea is to have Spark use the Hive metadata, the structure, the table format and stuff uh, that's available already to make it easy to access those um, that, that data. But it will, of course, use its own RDD data frame uh, distributed memory to make it work fast. Uh, so don't try comparing the two. Um, um, apart from that, uh, syntax-wise is reasonable. It doesn't have full SQL uh, support at the moment yet. And I'm not entirely sure that's ever going to happen either because it's a programming language you're using in Spark. It's not really SQL you're writing. It's just able to, through um, uh, object-oriented programming methodology, you can kind of make a SQL statement built like that. But having a select and a select and a select with a join, at a certain point, you've got to get into trouble there, I think. Now, it does have support for just having an SQL statement as a string and give that to Spark. But then, of course, behind the scenes, it needs to remodel that for you. And is that going to give you the real result you want or not? kind of depends. It's also very different if you're doing it with uh, Python or with Scala, because the way the Python gets uh, formed into Scala, gets formed into SQL, you get a lot of abstraction on top of there. So be careful <laughs> how you're going to use this and do test it out. Um, the one last thing I might say about this is there was a thing called Shark, which stand, stood for Hive on Spark, and that project is pretty much dead. Yep. But this project, Spark SQL, kind of took the best stuff from that project to base their, so, uh, their uh, solution on. Uh, it's not the same thing. It's quite different, actually. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, really, to, to round it out, if you're using Spark already and you want to use some SQL in with your Spark, you know, so if you're using uh, Zeppelin Notebooks, a great example of that, if, you, if you've got some stuff written in uh, some stuff written in Python, some stuff written in um, whatever else, you might also want to throw in some SQL into that as well. It's the perfect use case. Um, we typically, or I typically don't see people just using Spark SQL on its own. It's usually used in combination with a whole bunch of existing Spark that's going on. True. To the future, though, that might change because I've got a customer now that's doing its, all, his whole ETL3 in Spark. For them, of nice. course, it would make sense to have all, the Hive, uh, all their SQL access in Spark as well. If that's if that is a good way of doing things, we'll see because they're still working on it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a new approach, and uh, they like it apparently. So see where that ha- where that hit. All right, good. Okay, looking at the time, we have to move on to the next one, and the next option is Apache Phoenix. Now, Apache Phoenix is not really an SQL engine uh, on sich. 
it's more of a layer on top of a NoSQL engine called HBase that allows people that talk SQL and do not talk NoSQL to access an HBase NoSQL key value store. So it's an additional project install that will just will translate any SQL statement you send to it into whatever it needs to talk to HBase. It does not transform HBase into a relational database. So if you give this Phoenix uh, engine a lot of joins, I'm pretty sure it will do it for you, but it's not going to be fast. Because again, NoSQL, you have atomic updates are very fast. The moment you have to do any kind of join, it's the worst possible join, it's a broadcast join. It will not give you the performance you want. That being said, it is a pretty generic solution to access non-SQL stores in an SQL way. And I've seen SQL, uh, Phoenix actually being used in other situations as well to make a kind of an abstract layer to access a virtual data, as I call it, in those uh, circles. Mm, anything to add for you? Um, I mean, the only thing I would really add is is you tend to see uh, things like Phoenix used when you've got like a, a speed layer. So we talked about the Lambda architecture on the uh, two episodes ago, um, where you have a, a speed layer and a uh, access layer, a reporting layer. So you know Phoenix would typically be on top of HBase, and that would be part of your speed layer. That would be the thing that would be. Um, you know, regularly queried as data is flowing through the system. If you're doing, uh, you know, Storm or something like that, you regularly see that paired up with you know, something like Phoenix if you want to, if you want that interface to be SQL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So moving on. Um, so now we're we're out of the uh, out of the main Apache projects and we're into in incubating projects, and uh, we're starting off with the most recent incubating project, which is Apache Impala. Um, so this was uh, developed by Cloudera initially, um, and you know for for quite some time it was a uh, it was an open source uh, project, but it was a closed community, um, so not not a true uh, Apache project. Um, the code was just out there on GitHub. Um, relatively recently, though, that's uh, that's changed, and Cloudera have uh, seen the light, some might say, and added it into Hooray. the <laughs> absolutely all, all praise open source. Um, and they've added it into um, the Apache Software Foundation, contributed to it there, and it's now an incubating project, which I think is uh, it's, it's just great for open source. Um, so it's uh, you know, from their website, it's an open source analytic MPP database for Apache Hadoop that provides the fastest time to insight. Um, so I think they were doing really well with that until they kind of flubbed it at the end with the uh, fastest time to insight. Because to me, that uh, I think that's a little bit uh, of marketese. But there we go. Um, it gives you a, a good idea of, of where it's heading. Um, I would say that it is probably um, one of the main competitors for Hive today when we see people um, comparing um, you know, their, their options for SQL engines. It's probably one of the the main things out there although there's there's uh you know spark spark sql is uh, coming up there as a as a close third place and some of the others we'll be talking about are starting to nip at its heels um but it's generally considered to be you know very fast sql um for smaller databases uh, and for smaller data sets um so there's there's uh, there's some real focus there on you know those those smaller uh, data set and response times um, it definitely used to be uh, considered, you know, one of the the fastest of engines available. Um, but we talked earlier about some of the improvements that have come into Hive over the last uh, eighteen months or so, and that's maybe taken some of the shine off of uh, off Impala and uh, bringing Hive closer into line um, with 
um, Impala now. So there's uh, there's lots of things happening, and of course, you know, Spark SQL uh, being pure in memory has, is also taking taking chunks out of that as well. Um, and you've also got uh, our next topic, Apache Hawk, um, coming in and and trying to uh, dethrone them. So you know, there's there's definitely lots and lots of options uh, in this space. But Impala's been around for quite some time. Uh, it's uh, it's reasonably stable. And uh, we certainly see uh, a reasonable amount of it in the overall ecosystem. Yeah, the one thing I would like to add is that recently, uh, in my view, uh, development on Impala has kind of stalled stalled a bit. We didn't, I didn't see much change anymore, and maybe that's the reason that they finally went to Apache community now to get more of an ecosystem around it and more development around it. So it's definitely a good thing they tried that. But even compare the Impala with uh, Hive, for example, the whole Stinger and Stinger.next, you had the whole community really working to make it better all the time. And on the Impala front, I haven't seen really a big fundamental change in what they're doing to make things better or whatever better may be for you. Yeah, I, I think there's... I mean, they're uh, really they're they're starting from a standing start when it comes to the community, right? They've they've got to build that up, you know, contributing the code to a, the Apache Software Foundation, and you know, create an incubating project. That's that's the first step on on a on a sort of a many mile journey. So they've got their work cut out for them, I think, in uh, in getting the community invigorated around it and developing that. And you know, who knows? Maybe in uh, twelve months' time, the picture will be very different. Um, yeah, me for me, I'm very happy that they're actually doing this because it's competition is good. Having yeah. only one in, in any field is bad, and Hive and Impala they're com- good competitors for each other. The reason that Hive is accelerating now is because Impala was napping at their heels. If Hive takes over, then Impala needs to improve again. It's that the people that benefit that's the people that are using it. So it's always good. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. Let's wish the Impala guys the best of luck getting out of incubating and coming to a real Apache project. Yeah, and building a good community and, and making some, some cool innovation. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Same here, only better. All right. Okay, next one. Uh, next one also went incubating. Now, you just said that the Impala was the newest incubating one. I think uh, this one, being uh, Apache Hawk incubating, is actually newer incubating because they only incubated a month or so ago, and Impala's a uh, couple of months could already. Be. Could be. Have could to be. look it up. But yep. there won't be. Big difference between the two, anyway. Uh, Apache Hawk, uh, originally developed by Pivotal, uh, who had their own uh, Hadoop distribution once upon a time and have now moved over to the ODPI. It's a, uh, as they say it, it's an advanced MPP elastic query engine and analytic database for enterprises. Looks like these incubating guys have a better marketing department than the real Apache jobs because their (laughs) slogans really sound better. Now, personally, I have never worked with Hawk before. But I have talked to their people a bit, the Pivotal people, and my impression, and please correct me if, I'm, if you think I'm wrong, is that they're trying to make the analytical part more important. They're not that. They're also in memory most of the time, so they also go for the speed uh, and not much, not very much for the size. Where Hive's more for size and less for speed, perhaps. But they even go further than Impala into going for the analytics and trying to get even some kind of machine learning methodologies in there in your execution of SQL itself. How's your uh, view on that? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. I, I don't really have a, a great deal to to add to it. I've. Uh, similar to you, I've never really done a, a great deal with it. I have actually installed it um, and run a SQL query, and 
it, it did what SQL queries do, which is run and spit out results. Um, but uh, but I don't have a massive amount of experience with it. But it's certainly, uh, it, it's again, it's another addition to the open source community. It's another uh, you know nice contribution to the Apache Software Foundation. And, uh, you know, more power to them. And I, I hope that there's some, some interesting stuff uh, coming along next. Yeah, and because of this analytical edge, they do try to make a different niche for themselves. It's not like one yeah. they don't want to try this, the same but better. They have their own little way of getting in there, which would be good for the, again, for the choice. A good, uh, yeah. different choice possible there. And also, I've read from their website that their SQL standard compliance is very high. Yeah, actually, I, I believe I believe that to be the case. Um, I know that um, I think Hive is uh, I think two you know two options away from being uh, SQL twenty eleven analytics compliant. I think Hawk is already there. Um, I'd need to confirm that, but I think I think that's the I think Hawk is significantly uh, further ahead in that space. I've been told that Impala has their own dialect of SQL. More is that true? Uh, no, well, I think there may be some uh, some extensions that they they provide, but I mean, the the SQL the SQL standards are really what I would recommend people be measuring against uh, rather than rather than third party options and extensions because the reality is that you know the best engine today may not be the best engine tomorrow, and in fact we've got a, a conversation on how to choose uh, your engine coming up a little bit later that'll come into that. Okay, so uh, out of the hawk and into the drill, uh, Apache drill in this case. So this is um, the open source version of Google's BigQuery. Um, there's a lot of contribution from MapR. That's where uh, a lot of the contributors came out of. Um, it's got uh, it's got uh, quite a niche following and a growing following, I would say. There's uh, I certainly recall a uh, someone at a customer that I was working with last year who was uh, very strongly asking you know um, when were we going to be supporting uh, Apache Drill as part of the the distribution and uh, you know it's got so many great features so many fantastic things about it Um, and in fact you know there's a number of of customers and prospects have, have talked have said similar things to me and uh, so, you know, their tagline or their, from their website is schema-free SQL query engine for Hadoop, NoSQL, and cloud storage. So they're kind of they're setting the, uh, um, throwing the net a little bit wider, so not just, um, not just Hadoop, but tying into uh, NoSQL and even cloud storage options as well. So a, sing- a single um, sort of combined query engine across those different environments. Um, so you know some people um, that have uh, have played with this have complained that maybe it's uh, it's lacking some en- enterprise features in some way, shape, or form, um, and also you know stability can be a little bit of an option, uh, a little bit of a, an issue. But if um, the kind of workloads that you're looking to do are covered by the functionalities that are present in a drill today. Um, then it's definitely something worth looking at. Anything from you, Jan? Uh, not really. I mean, I've also heard the fact that uh, Drill it has a very bad marketing department because that seems to be a good solution, but there's not much word of mouth going on. Yeah. Um, from their more wide approach, it does feel to me that they're looking more at the same uh, ideology, if you like, as a phoenix, where they just try to be an abstraction layer that does SQL on top of whatever you have underneath there. 
so I'm not sure if there's any competition going on there again. I don't have uh, that much experience with it. But uh, as you as you said, it's a pretty niche niche approach. Maybe it's just word of mouth that's missing them, but uh, not not much else to add. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, word of mouth usually tends to accelerate when you get more users. So I think that it's probably just uh, a factor of that. I guess yes, marketing. Yep. Okay, on to the next one. And this one is still an open source project, but it's not an Apache project. They do uh, open source their software under the Apache 2 license, however. And it's called Presto. Again, Presto, pretty niche. I haven't really worked with myself. From their website, it says it's for running interactive analytic queries against data sources of all sizes, ranging from gigabytes to petabytes. And that's pretty much valid for every solution we've talked about already <laughs> so from my point it seems to be like a living thing some people are apparently using it but i have not seen it anywhere in the wild myself have you no not yet um it, it's another one of those engines that uh, i hear people talking about and um i'm sure it's not going to be too long before um someone goes ahead and, and deploys it um and starts using it within my group of uh, of customers in anger but not not something I've seen a, a great deal of yet. Uh, I know there are, there are a lot of supporters, a lot of people um, willing for it to do well. So we'll see. Okay, so that's Presto. Um, so now we're coming out of the open source world and we're into the uh, closed source proprietary world. Now, we're just going to cover a, a couple of options here. There are actually quite a few different options here. Um, available, but we're going to pick on some of the, the, the two largest ones that we see um, on a really regular basis. Um, so for the first one out of these two is the Oracle Big Data SQL. Um, it's a closed source uh, proprietary uh, SQL engine. Um, and uh, from, the, from their own words, uh, it extends Oracle SQL to Hadoop and NoSQL and the security of Oracle Database to all of your data. It also includes a unique smart scan service that minimizes data movement and maximizes performance. Um, yeah, so there. obviously, uh, the thing with that is it seems to say a lot and not really tell you anything. So um, some might say that's typical Oracle, but I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I do see uh, a lot of Oracle users, um, you know, this is their first, uh, entry into, um, SQL on Hadoop just because it gets bundled with, um, so many of the different options that Oracle provides. And, uh, you know, if, if you want the, the same Oracle security layer across your, uh, that you have across your Oracle database farm, across your big data farm, then obviously that's a, a significant uh, a significant thing to, to look at. And that's certainly one of the things that where I see Oracle Big Data SQL uh, being used heavily. Yeah, for me, the first part of the tagline, the extends Oracle SQL to Hadoop, that for me tells that they're not focusing on Hadoop, but just allowing Hadoop to also play in their little playground. So I'm kind of wondering how well that integration will work since they have to focus mainly on the Oracle SQL itself. So obviously that's good for them. It's their product, uh, what they should do. But uh, again, since we can't download this and install it on a cluster locally to play with it, there's not much we can uh, test on it and uh, not much I can think yeah. about it. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, Oracle has a whole bunch of extensions to SQL uh, that they've developed over you know, many years of, of extensive uh, research and development and and that side of things and obviously this extends those 
um, extensions into the uh, the big data world. So that that's uh, that I think is what they're talking about in terms of the Oracle SQL into Hadoop side of things as well. Yeah, let's uh, close off that one. Go to the last one for today, which is not a big one. That's IBM Big SQL. I'm going to use SQL now just to show that I'm lead just as you are. It's another closed source proprietary solution by IBM, obviously. And from their website, it leverages IBM's strength in SQL engines to provide anti-SQL access to data across any system from Hadoop via JDBC or ODBC seamlessly whether the data exists in Hadoop or relational databases. Again, something that's pretty valid for anything on, uh, we talked already about. Uh, they do talk specifically about ANSI SQL, which makes me believe that their SQL syntax uh, would be very close to the standard. We'll have to look at it in more detail to be certain. Apart from that, yeah, if you're using IBM solutions, IBM has its own Hadoop uh, uh, pro pro proposition as well. I'm assuming that if you're using IBM's Hadoop, the IBM SQL will work very well on that. The whole question about open source, closed source, vendor lock-in, non-vendor lock-in, that's a choice you make at that point. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. The one thing I did note on their website is they proudly say it uses MapReduce, which for me is a little bit, uh, I, won't, I won't say medieval, but it doesn't really call out modern or high-tech to me anymore. So that was a bit of a, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of uh, Hadoop is dead um, sort of fud around about a year and a half ago, and what that was really talking about is MapReduce is largely dead at that point. You know, some people are still using it, but lots of other execution engines have have taken over from that. Things like Tez, for example, um, and uh, you know, we're seeing you know the, the start of things like LLAP. Um, looking to come out in the future. So, yeah, uh, anything that, that that proudly campaigns uh, MapReduce as being its core engine, yeah. yeah. And just to be certain, we're going to put uh, URLs on the uh, show notes for this episode so we can link to those pages where we found these uh, things, just to make yeah. sure. We're not spending fud, we're just taking what is on the website. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if they've changed it in response to what we've said on the website, then use the Wayback Machine, and that will tell you what they originally had. <laughs> well, okay. I hope they change it after they hear this and they start using something more fast. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. So I think that we've we've given you a, a bit of an overview on some of the different options for for SQL engines. There's a couple of you know common things to to think about when you're when you're looking at this though. So first is um, you know so you're going to have some method of connecting to your SQL engine, and you know typically that's going to be uh, JDBC or ODBC drivers um, provided by um, your your either your Hadoop distribution or by the uh, the component in question. And that's just, it's just standard way for connecting almost anything that you're likely to want to hook into your uh, SQL engine, whether it's, you know, uh, reporting uh, interface, something like Tableau or ClickView or something like that, or even uh, you can use uh, command line clients, things like Beeline or SQL line. Yeah, it's always a good thing to just check in an application when you use if it has a JDBC or DBC connection. If it has, you can pretty much talk to any SQL uh, database out there. It's a totally generic, abstracted uh, communication layer. Yeah, Excel, all these kind of things. <laughs> Not the best big data appliance out there, but hey, yes, it works. Hey, <laughs> you never know, you never know. Some, uh, lots of people really like Excel and really like uh, using it. And in fact, the, the, some of the later versions have got some, some cool functions uh, for using. But yeah, it's it's not typically what I would recommend. But there you go. 
Okay, next technology topic, um, SQL syntax compliance. We've kind of dipped in and out of this as we've gone through as it's come top of mind. Um, but uh, in order to make sure that you are uh, able to easily reuse the kind of queries and the logic that you've no doubt uh, built up in your organizations, uh, it's really useful to make sure that the tool you're going to implement or the SQL engine you're going to implement supports as many of the SQL um, sort of syntax items that you have in your queries. So, you know, take a look at the way your SQL is being written. And in some cases, you can just port queries straight across from one engine to the other. And in other cases, actually, you may need to do a bit of tweaking or tuning. That's going to vary from engine to engine, from SQL compliance level to, to SQL compliance level. And it's also going to depend on whether or not you've got any uh, proprietary extensions in your existing SQL. You know, we talked about uh, Oracle having specific extensions, but many other database vendors do as well. So if you're using some of those proprietary extensions... Um, or even if you're using extensions that are outside the standard ANSI SQL, you may well need to, to tweak some of that. But I have to say, typically my experience has been that people are able to port across existing SQL very, very quickly and very easily into the majority of the engines that I see people using. Yeah, same as Hallett, of course, if you're moving from one Hadoop SQL solution to another Hadoop SQL solution. If you Absolutely. stay with the standard SQL, you can just copy the script over, it's going to work. If you try to use the more esoteric things that that specific thing uh, presents you with, you might have problems moving in. And that's, you control your own vendor lock-in at that point. Just use this technology with intelligence to make sure to avoid too deep a hole in that point. Because with these things, just as you see Hive and Impala always fighting for the crown and all the other ones out there as well, it does make sense to keep an open mind to be able to change underlying structure when it makes sense. Yeah, or even not necessarily change, but even test. You know, if if your if your primary production environment is is using Hive, for example, there's nothing wrong with you know going out and experiencing what maybe Drill or Presto or anything else can can do for you. And if you've written everything in standard SQL, you can just go and you know fire it up, connect it to your cluster, and and run a quick query and and see what it does. Uh, another point uh, you might ev evaluate when you're thinking of, uh, of think of choosing uh, between one of those uh, solutions is uh, what your requirements are regarding multi-user access. Because a lot of these big data solutions are built to access massive amounts of data, but not built to accommodate massive amounts of users at the same time. If you look at uh, the old Hive, for example, when it was still using MapReduce, or indeed the recent IBM, who's still using MapReduce, Every single query you've put out there is going to form a complete MapReduce, even TES, tag across the whole cluster and having tens of thousands of those going on at the same time concurrently, that might not be the best solution. Now, if you do need that, then in my opinion, you should have to look to things that do in memory, which will give you better access, or even go to Apache Phoenix on top of HBase, which is particularly built for concurrency. But then, of course, you take into that the limitation that HBase brings with it being not a relationable database. So the multi-user concurrency, the multi-access versus the built-in relationable, relationable? relational uh, functionality of the database is definitely something to look for. Yeah, and this also comes down to how you implement your capacity scheduler queues, for example, within Yarn. So if you've got, um, you know, you've got twenty users in each queue, 
uh, that's probably okay. If you've got 500 users in one queue that's just across the entire cluster, maybe that's not going to be so great. And also, to a certain extent, it depends on the the size of the cluster and the specs and that sort of thing as well. So, but yeah, generally, it's definitely something worth uh, worth thinking about, worth considering, and worth taking into account when you're looking at your your choice of engine. You want to cover the final the final topic? Yes, let's round it off. It's uh, one of my favorite to- topics, which is benchmarks. Um, whenever you talk about these things, people are going to throw benchmarks against the wall and see what sticks, and that's basically the best approach to them. Because in my opinion, you can make a benchmark say whatever you want, and every one of these solutions has benchmarks showing that they're better than all the other ones, and all the other ones have benchmarks showing that they're better than the other one. It's It's very hard to get a reasonable benchmark out of there, precisely because... None, none of these actually is able to replace the other one. They all have their strengths and their their weaknesses. And figuring out what's good for your workflow, what you need, is a very big thing to do when you choose your, your solution here. We've talked about this before when we did the episode on operations, I think. Uh, you should never... Well, okay, you can use standard benchmarks to have an idea of it, but if you really want to make a choice, take an SQL workload you're using, you're running, and see how each of these actually do that benchmark, that uh, baseline, that SQL statement, that script that you're using. That's the best way to just figure out which one of these are going to be the best for you. Of course, as we talked before, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. And if you need this multi-concurrency, you go for for Phoenix. If you can't live with HBase beneath it, then you have to go for one of the other ones. You go for big sets, go Hive, small sets, go Impala. This is value of today. Tomorrow it might be different. Again, use your own SQL scripts and test it out in your own situation. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, your own scripts, your own data, and uh, and yeah, and also keep benchmarking as well. Don't don't just make that a one-off step the first time you choose an engine. You know, keep an eye on on how things are progressing because, uh, as you said, Jon, you know the the state the state of the uh, the state of the nation today may not equal the state of the nation tomorrow, um, and you know. The, the, the wonderful thing about open source is just how fast and how interesting it is. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always moving, always evolving. Um, so there's always plenty of options for you. Yeah, as I said, more on benchmarking in our previous episode on operations. Go and have a listen if you haven't. Well, that's it for uh, the main topic, I think, unless you have anything else to add to it. No, nope, nothing else for me. I love me some sequel. <laughs> well, you rather than me, I'll go for Spark any day. That being said... Uh, that's it for the top for the main topic for this show. When we come back after the music, we'll go into some listener questions. Okay, so in the last section of the podcast today on SQL on Hadoop, we answer questions received from you, our glorious listeners. Uh, so if you've got a question that you'd like us to answer, please send an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org or use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle. Go to our website at www.roaringelephant.org where you can find the contact form to submit questions and obviously more information about the podcast. So we went a little bit long on the main section today, so we're just going to cover a couple of quick questions. Um, these are questions that have come in uh, around SQL, uh, so these are the ones that we thought made sense to include here. Uh, so, Jon, first question to you. Uh, how much storage overhead uh, should I count on if I have uh, SQL in my Hadoop workflow? 
Yeah, that's actually a good question because uh, a lot of people uh, automatically assume that if you have uh, unstructured data, as it's called, on your Hadoop system already and you want to put it into a, a database, you need to make a copy of that data into a structured table or format. And that's definitely one way to go, but if you're still in the exploratory phase, you're still looking at what's possible, creating all of these tables on petabytes of data becomes very expensive very quickly, and you don't need to. Uh, I'm not sure about all of the options we talked about today, but I know in Hive, for example, you have something called the Serializer Deserializer, or SERDE for short, which allows you to actually on the fly convert that unstructured data into a tabular format in memory and uh, give that as an access point to any Hive query. So in that case, you don't have any storage overhead at all. You're just working directly on the uh, original raw data. The disadvantage, of course, is it's slow because you have to serialize all this data on the fly every single time you touch it. Typically, what I see my customers do is when they're in exploratory phase, they use it this way. And once they have something they found makes sense and some people use or they need kind of a finished product to expose to a, a Tableau or a ClickView or whatever, at that point, you build a table. And that table, that org file or whatever format you're using for your solution, will never contain the entire uh, raw data set, but specifically what you need for that specific use case. You may have a million columns in a raw data set. Your application needs 10 you build a table with those 10 columns and you fix that in and that's going to be fast and a good reliable user interface uh, user access method for uh, users that way yeah yeah I, I completely agree um the only other thing that i occasionally see is um and it depends on the type of uh, data they're ingesting but people go straight from uh, ingesting their data and they just land it in ORC file to start off with. They add a bit of compression in there and that all of a sudden that, that reduces things down and it's still you know it's still fairly speedy. So that's that's definitely the other option. Yeah, one caveat there is that you kind of might lose stuff. As a, in a Hadoop system, you kind of want to keep the raw data because you never know what you cut off today. Maybe the money for tomorrow. And if you land directly, in, of course, if it's coming from an SQL source, obviously dump it in an SQL destination. Yep, indeed, indeed. Okay, next question to you. How do I make my SQL faster? Okay, so this is this is uh, something that I uh, get uh, asked on a fairly regular basis. Not as often as it used to be, I must admit. Um, but uh, you know, the, there's a couple of things that people uh, need to make sure they have enabled. And it varies from engine to engine. Uh, I'm more familiar with Hive, so that's what I'm going to be primarily focusing Um but uh, you know there are different, definitely tips and tricks available for each engine. So in terms of using Hive, uh, the first thing is please, please, please make sure you're using the Tez execution engine uh, and not MapReduce. Um, Tez does a lot of things differently from MapReduce to make it more responsive um, in many ways. So things like reducing the amount of uh, stuff that gets paged back to disk, keeping things in memory, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, keeping uh, pre-warming containers and keeping containers warm, all those sorts of things, you'll only get a benefit from if you're using the Tez execution engine. Um, second one is to use ORC file or ORC file, depending on your preferred pronunciation. Um, this gives you things like uh, predict pushdown, compression. Um, just quickly on compression, some people think, oh, compression... Um, this will uh, surely this will slow things down, but typically, actually, the slowest part is um, re removing stuff from disk, uh, taking pulling stuff off of disk. So actually, compression uh, helps that significantly, and there's usually plenty of CPU power to, to deal with that. Um, 
Third one, vectorization. Implement vectorization. It's available now in Hive. Please use it. Um, another one, uh, and this is going to depend on the types of queries that you're using, uh, but make sure you're using the cost-based optimizer. Uh, it's been available in Hive for a little while now, um, and uh, you, know, you should definitely take a look at that, depending on the complexity of your queries. And the fifth and final one, which applies across all engines everywhere, is please write good SQL. <laughs> um, all the optimization in the world won't help if you've written some, some poorly structured SQL that just does things in an arse-backwards way. So anything you can do to optimize your SQL um, will really make probably a, a bigger difference than any of the other things I've talked about. And that's it. That's how you make your SQL faster. All right, that's all the time we have for today. We do hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a new episode where we'll have our first Hadoop Summit-focused episode. As uh, many of you may know, we will have a Hadoop Summit in Dublin in April. And uh, as being the premier Hadoop podcast, or at least we think so, we have to put some uh, attention to that and we will have a number of episodes focused on that. More news to come. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions and please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps new users to discover this podcast and broaden our audience. If you, for some reason, don't think we deserve the full five stars, that's fine too, but please let us know via the feedback form on our website why. Of course, you can also email us to podcast at roaringelephant.org, send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms and any other feedback you might have. Until then, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Speak soon. Bye-bye.